must be something terribly wrong for us to have trouble. But, you know, when you take that attitude, you're fighting God Himself, because He said, many are the afflictions of the wicked. Now, wait a minute. That's Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will save them out of them all. And He chastens every son whom He loves. So, trials, troubles, afflictions, and difficulties, sicknesses, everything are something that God uses as tools to help prepare our hearts and our minds to Him. So yeah, when we have these things, in one sense, there is something wrong. We're not close enough to God. And therefore, we go through all these things to prepare us, to get us ready for what is about to come. It's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to imagine that something that is about to appear on the scene is going to make Islamists forget Allah, Buddhists forget Buddha, Christians to forget Jesus, and on and on. It has to be something so overwhelmingly impressive and awesome that even the very elect would be be deceived if it were possible. It has to be an incredible display. Are we ready to see through and resist that? Because it's coming very soon. So let's not be discouraged and frustrated by some of the troubles we see and some of the things I could announce today. Sheila is hanging on by a thread. And my prayer is that God deliver her and heal her would be my optimal thought and prayer. But otherwise, he let her go quickly because of all the suffering that she's been through in the last six years. So, uh, she and her family are in need of our prayers. Very much so. And others. I won't go into the whole list. I don't want to take the rest of the day. But we are suffering the things that the rest of this world is, and God has not yet chosen to make a difference, and we should have expected this. So let us not be discouraged or down. Let's just renew our efforts to get as close to God as we possibly can, because Satan would love to snare us and take us at this point, especially those who are seeking to serve God. Uh, He is after us, so let's keep that in mind. All right, I think I want to continue today in Psalm 124, move on through some of this. I did say that I might speak about some of the things that are going on in the world, but I, that isn't really what's on my mind at the moment, and I, I did not choose to bring that today. I want to continue in this because I think there's a lot of uh, encouragement here, and encouragement and hope is something that we need when we're facing various types of trials, troubles, and tribulations, and temptations, and difficulties that beset us on every side. Now, there was a plea or a prayer in Psalm 123 that we look and wait until the Eternal have mercy on us, and then a prayer is made to have mercy, and how we're 
filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. The world, essentially, in some respects, is at ease. They don't think they have to change anything. They don't have to grow. Everything will be taken care of them or for them by our government or whatever. And when things do get dire, then they'll look to the new world government to give them everything they need. So, they're in a sense at ease, even though some are getting nervous now watching what's going on in the world. But anyone who would truly try to seek God, they hold in scorn because they figure, what good will that do? And if you read some of the comments under articles in, on the internet uh, where they're commenting on maybe a political or a world news article of some kind, and if somebody quotes the Bible, others will jump upon them. Uh, they don't want to hear that. They want to hear all the other reasons that this or that might happen, but they don't want to hear what God might have to say in His Word. So God's Word is held in contempt and in scorn. So let's go with that thought into chapter 124, where he says, If it had not been the Eternal who was on our side, now may Israel say, and it doesn't say right there what Israel might say. It leaves the thought unfinished and repeats it that we might grasp and understand. So he says it again. If it had not been the Eternal who was on our side, twice spoken, when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick or quickly in English today, when their wrath was kindled against us. Now, this is a prophetic passage, as really is all of the book of the Psalms. Revelation 12 comes immediately to mind. Now, when Satan is cast down, he immediately will come after the church. No one else. The rest of the world will be in his hand. It will be under control, then, of Satan's new order. It will only be the church that is resisting him. So when God casts him down out of heaven, he will come and flow with armies like a river to try to destroy us. And you know the story. The church is taken to her place of safety for three and a half years. That is what is being talked about here, because this is an end-time book. Even the Protestant commentaries mention that this section of the Psalms is about the regathering and the blessing of the church. And the church did not exist when this was written. So, men will rise up against us. Then they had swallowed us up quickly when their wrath was kindled against us. We wouldn't last long, would we? We don't have nuclear bombs or a nuclear threat. We're not out here building a nuclear bomb as perhaps Iran is. We're helpless. We're sitting ducks. And without God's protection, we would all be wasted. Very quickly so, in fact. Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. The exact same analogy that God uses there in Revelation 12. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. The world is proud of its military. 
Americans have made a great deal over the Marines, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, and so on. About a few, the proud, the Marines, and so on. But pride is what this world is based upon, as we heard about in the sermonette. Vanity, pride, ego, self. Things that don't last, because human beings are going to die and be gone, unless God chooses to save them out of this and give them eternity. So anything that is done on this earth is vain, and vain doesn't necessarily mean looking in the mirror and thinking how lovely I am, but it means it has no end or any purpose that lasts. It's all just something that passes away. And that is the deeper meaning of vanity as opposed to just physical beauty. Although it fits there as well, because... Time takes care of physical beauty as well, doesn't it? And no matter what potions and lotions they use, eventually you're just going to crack and sag and fall. And we do get old and we fall apart. That's just the way that it's designed. And you can fight it and fight it, but eventually it'll get you. So it is vanity. It's a futile process. That doesn't mean we shouldn't take care of ourselves and look as nice as we can. But let's not go overboard with that. Because the proud waters will go over our soul. Blessed be the Eternal, who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. They won't rip and tear us apart when this happens. We will be protected. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we are escaped. He says we're like a bunch of little birds that they throw the net over and catch them in the net. But he says that will not happen to us. It will be taken care of. He will cause us to find a way of escape. And in fact, he's outlined it for us there in Matthew 24, that when a certain event occurs, that is the time to flee to the mountains of Judea. Better know where Judea is and which mountains to go to. Let him who reads understand. If you're in the wrong mountain, the wrong Judea, you're in trouble. But we will be permitted an escape. It's amazing today how many things seem to fit the Internet. I've mentioned that scripture in Isaiah where it talks about the spider's web that is woven And there's more, the internet can be used as a wonderful tool for some things. But there is by far more evil on the internet than there is anything else. And the internet does capture a lot of people and helps destroy any morality and any uh, character that they might have. And it is being used by governments to try to find and catch or snare people. I just read this morning that the Australian government is now going to require all Internet providers, all telephone providers, to retain everything that passes on your Internet connection or your telephone for two years. Everything so that they can go through it if they so choose and decide what to do with you. That's what it ultimately comes down to. 
And those draconian measures are also being utilized by our own government here and increasingly uh, minute detail. They're getting more and more control of everything we say and do. The land of the free and the home of the brave. Yeah, that's a laugh. We need to redo that song because it is not by any means true. God bless America. Why would he bless America with the way we are today? That is a vain song for us to sing anymore because America cannot and will not be blessed until it has been first destroyed. But, for those of us who will serve God and do as He pleases and wishes, we will be allowed to escape. And He said, pray that you be worthy to escape. He is our only hope. He is our only way. The rest of the world is going to be snared and taken. And only true believers, whom the rest of the world will hate, will escape. Do not let the things which you know slip. There's only going to be one place of safety. It is going to be in Zion with the remnant church and the two witnesses. That's the only place. If people do not find them and go there, there will be no safety. That's the bottom line. That's what Haggai, Zechariah, Matthew, and Revelation combined say. I think we know the story. Let us not let it slip away from us. Then he tells us in verse 8, Our help is in the name of the Eternal who made heaven and earth. So even though dire things are coming, great danger is approaching. The only help is in the name of Him who made heaven and earth. Now, He's not our last gasp. He's not our last resort. He is the only thing. We need to look to Him first, not second, third, fourth, or fifth. The preppers in our country today who are waking up are depending on food and ammo and guns and hidey holes and various things first. And then they put God maybe somewhere down the list on preparing. It will not make any difference how much food, how many guns and ammo you might have or whether you have the best hidey hole on earth, you think. You cannot escape unless you have God, the true God, who made heaven and earth. And I think it's interesting that he put it that way, because there are many gods, and there is a satanic god coming who will worship or will act in the power of Satan and set himself up as the true God. But God put it in a very good way here. The one God who made heaven and earth. That's the one. That's the one we need to worship. He is our escape. He's number one on our prep list then, not number ten or number eight. Turn to God. There is your safety. There is your hope. Being in the church will not save you. 
I don't care what branch of the church it is. Any one of them. Because even the one chosen to do the end-time work and to build from scratch, or, well, not really from scratch, because the people have already been called, they've just not yet been chosen and brought. I lost the thought thinking that through. Uh, Being in the church will not save us either. Because even that one that is chosen and is in the right place doing the right thing, building the temple, building Jerusalem, doing those things that the prophecies say must be done, when the abomination is set in the temple, it said even at that point you will have to be accounted worthy to escape. By God. Not by the church, not by the two witnesses, not by anybody but God himself. And though you might be with the right group, as I've said before, if God doesn't want you there, you're going to break your leg or sprain your ankle or something's going to happen and you'll be left behind because God is the one who makes the final cut. So let us not comfort ourselves by saying, well, I'm in the right place. Let's comfort ourselves in our relationship with the God who made heaven and earth. That's the key to everything. Now that, it does follow, of course, that if you haven't served the true eternal God, that you won't be in the right place, you won't be there at the right time, and you won't even have opportunity to escape if counted worthy. So it is important to know who we are, where we are, and what we're doing as we serve God. There are a lot of nice people who know a lot of godly things who will not be included. Only a remnant, 10%, in the first place are going to be invited or stirred by God to come and build. 90% of the church, no matter how nice of people they are, for whatever reason, will turn away. They don't like this, they don't like that, they don't like something else. You know what? What they see that they come to will be something God does to show His glory. But if they want to look at personalities and people, you, me, whoever else might be involved, they might not come. They must see God in what is going on. And they must see God in us. Let's turn that around a little bit. A sermon was given in 92 early, Do You See God in Your Life by John Rottenbaugh. Do you see God in your life? And we should. It's a very important sermon. But, do others see God in our lives. That is going to become a very important thing. If they're looking for where they ought to be and what they ought to be doing, and they take a look at us, will they see God? This is the critical factor. This is what it comes down to. Do I see God there? Ninety percent won't. 
Okay? Even though God himself does things. For whatever reason, they will turn another direction. That's almost beyond comprehension, isn't it? But human nature and Satan are very powerful things. Psalm 125 carries the thought forward. They that trust in the eternal shall be as Mount Zion. He uses Mount Zion on purpose because he says it will never be removed but abides forever. And if we serve and trust in God, then we will not be removed forever. We will be given eternal life in the kingdom of God and help rule the universe forevermore. Mount Zion will never be moved. That's why he uses the original Mount Zion and the original Jerusalem as metaphors for the church there in Hebrews 12. Is because he said that Satan would not prevail against his church, that it would remain forever. And they that trust God within that body will not be removed either. And I think it is interesting that God's people will be in the true Judea, near Zion, and Jerusalem, when the flight occurs, because they leave the hills of Judea and go into the mountains of Zion for protection, as many, many scriptures show us. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Eternal is round about His people, from henceforth, even forever. He says, Jerusalem is ringed by mountains. And that's the way he will be to the church. Now, the Jerusalem in the Middle East is ringed by hills. I wouldn't call them by any stretch of the imagination mountains. But it just sits on top of a hill. And there's not much higher around it. And certainly you don't, from Jerusalem, look out and see mountains round about it. The place that I think was the original, not the fake Jerusalem, any direction you look, you see mountains around it. The rise above it on every side. That's the way he uses this analogy here. You can look out from Jerusalem and as you see the mountains rise up around it, all around, God is going to be all around as a protection. So it's something that is a visual metaphor here. Something that you look and you see the circle of mountains and it is an analogy of the protection of God all around. So wherever Jerusalem is, it needs to have mountains round about it that stick up enough to make this analogy make sense. Now, if it's on a high hill and the hills around it are essentially lower as it is over in the Middle East, how could this make you understand something? Or throw in that one where Satan was tempting Christ. He set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and from there he took him to an exceeding high mountain. I don't think he hauled him over to Everest. Everything there was done in the environs of Jerusalem. And there is no exceeding high mountain over there. There is, near where I believe the place to be. Just a lot of things. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, 
God is not going to let them smite us with their rod, their military, whatever. Lest the righteous put forth their hands to iniquity. God will not let them dominate over us and let us turn to iniquity in their system. We will escape from that. Do good, O Eternal, to those that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. So this is going to play out. And the plea then is, God, do good to those who are seeking you and are upright in heart. That's what will be rewarded. That's what will make us worthy, in God's view, to escape what's coming. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Eternal shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. So that is part of what will happen with the church as a whole, is that they are letting it slip away from them. They're letting it out of their grasp. They're slowly or quickly turning away from the ways of God to their own ways and the ways of the world. And God will lead them forth. They'll suffer the trouble of the wicked. And some will repent in it, as Zechariah indicates. Perhaps 30% who go into that tribulation will repent during it. We do have trials, troubles, and afflictions now, and maybe it will turn us now so that we can escape that. Otherwise, we're going to have to repent under some pretty horrible conditions. And I hope you here, you on the phone, those who might someday hear this sermon and others we've given, will pay attention. We may be too broke to pay anything else, but you're never too broke to pay attention. Because these are the words of God. But peace shall be upon Israel. Now, that's a prophecy. Which Israel? Well, we already know that our nations of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are going to go into famine, pestilence, disease, and war. And be killed. All but less than 10%. Some even of the 10% are thrown in the fire. Ezekiel 5. This has to be spiritual Israel that's preserved. And when will we have peace in the church? You know, there really isn't yet peace in the church. There isn't really yet the love of God in the church. You know when it's going to come? Do you know when it's going to come? I do. I know exactly when it's going to come. Haggai 2.9 tells me that. When the latter temple is built, in this place will I bring peace, says the Eternal. There will be no peace in the church, and there will be no peace in the world, until God stirs the remnant of faithful people together to come with the two witnesses to build the church. And that is when peace will arrive. Not before and not until. And it will remain. Thereafter and forevermore, within that body of people, 
until Christ's return and the millennium is set up. So once it comes in Haggai 2.9, it will be there forevermore. And there will be one final cut when the abomination of desolation is set up. No, no, wait a minute. What, what am I thinking? It will remain there. Some will be cut out, yeah, when the abomination is set. The rest will go through the tribulation in a place of safety. And I would presume that most of those who get that far probably will remain faithful and be in the resurrection. I guess it's not guaranteed until he comes and you either lift or don't lift off the ground. But essentially, that's when peace is going to come. And within that body, the church, it will remain with a few exceptions of individuals, perhaps, forevermore. For from there, we are changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, and peace resides through the universe forever, Satan-bound. And that's the end of that. So then, we have a very pivotal scripture here. It's talking about that time, because Haggai tells us exactly what this is talking about. There are still those who think, well, the church is just spiritual. A physical temple does not need to be built. And my first argument on that is, why would Haggai say, in the context all the way through Haggai and Zechariah, is of the end-time church, the two witnesses, and those who are stirred as a remnant to come and build? I don't think you could find an individual who is part of the church of God, whichever branch or no branch they might be in today, who would say it is not time to build the spiritual temple. I think all hands would say that. But God says in Haggai that when He says it's time to build the temple, that the people will say, No! This isn't the time to build the temple. That could only be a physical temple that the people would argue against. Anybody with any understanding of the church and of God and of Christ and the Bible would always say it's time to build the spiritual temple. So Haggai must be talking about something else. Duh. What does it take? <clears throat> do we believe God's Word or not? Or do we believe in some smatterings of Protestantism that remain? Or do we believe in what? We must face the Word of God. We must believe what it says. 126. When, not if, he speaks very positively of things that are not as if they already are. When the Eternal turned again the captivity of Zion. He uses past tense here. It hasn't happened yet. But it's about to. We were like them that dream. We think, we dream of the things that Isaiah says. The things that Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets say, things that I've been quoting here today already, <coughs> that he says will happen. We're like them that dream. 
You know, when you wake up from a dream, it's either, well, shucks, that wasn't reality, or I'm sure glad that wasn't her reality, depending on what type of dream you're having. But dreams are not real, are they? We've all dreamed dreams and kind of wish that that one was real, but we wake up and it's gone. It wasn't real. So he says, when God turns this around, it's going to be like a bunch of dreamers. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Eternal has done great things for them. So that which seemed like a dream to us, it would just never, ever get here. Have you had recurring dreams of something that maybe was pleasant, something you really wanted, and yet it never seemed to happen? It just wouldn't come to pass. He says, we're like that. But suddenly, it will turn. And the sorrow and the crying will turn to joy and to happiness. Didn't we just keep one of the fasts of the months there from Zechariah 7 and 8? And in chapter 8 it says that these fasts, because of the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the church, the killing of the leadership, as in, I do believe Herbert Armstrong was probably murdered based on that scripture and Isaiah where it says there were liars and thieves and now there are murderers and so on. And the church fell apart after his death. All these fasts of the month fit the church perfectly. So we fast, as God says there, we should be, that these things be restored. But it's still almost like a dream, isn't it? We can read it. Maybe we can believe it. We can count on it. But then it seems like it doesn't come as fast as you want. And therefore you get discouraged, frustrated, oh well, going about life, whatever. Attitude might overtake us. We cannot afford to let that happen because God's Word is sure. And these things we've been reading and dreaming about, indeed, are going to happen. And we will laugh and shout for joy and sing. Those fasts of the months, he says there in Zechariah 8, will be turned into feasts of joy. Now, am I reading something into this and saying this is prophecy when it really isn't? Others might say, well, you can go through Psalms, and that's just nice things that David wrote, and it had to do with the early captivity of Israel and so on. doesn't fit today. They don't understand Haggai and Zechariah. They don't understand the two olive plants of Zechariah 14.4 state are the same ones in Revelation 11. And that that whole story is about the end-time church and its leadership. So that whole section in Zechariah is talking about now. And those who are keeping the fasts of the month now. And their bitterness will be turned to joy and feasting and happiness and singing. So when I read it in the Psalms, all it's saying is the same thing that Zechariah is saying about the church in the end time. What I am saying is not far-fetched. 
It's not something I'm putting together out of nothing. I don't have time in this series, which is going on forevermore, to go back and reprove all these things. But here it is, saying exactly the same thing, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Minor Prophets, and specifically then, in this passage, Haggai and Zechariah say about now. And it will be said among the heathen, the Eternal has done great things for them. They'll see it, they'll recognize it. They'll recognize where it came from, because those helpless little people out there could not have had all these blessings without God involved. Even as some kings in the past, like Nebuchadnezzar, or various other examples we could pull out of the Old Testament, complimented God, Pharaoh's another one, and says, well, that must be their God. And it was, because there was nothing else that Pharaoh or Neb could attribute it to. That didn't mean they turned and repented and worshipped God, they just recognized he was the one doing the work. And it'll be the same here in the end time as well. And then we will say, the Eternal has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Sad will turn to glad. Wonderful. Turn again our captivity, O Eternal, as the streams in the south. Turn it again. Cause them to flow. Cause it to work. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. We sow our little seed of righteousness in pain, in trial, in trouble, in sickness, and in death, and in all kinds of, in a farmer's analogy, bitter weather, bad soil, dry winds, or whatever, lack of water. We sow our spiritual seed, and we nurture it, and we help it, and we go to the source of living water to cause it to grow. And it seems difficult, just as gardening and farming can be difficult. But he says, we will reap in joy. The crop will come in. It will be worth the work that was put in. And did not Christ himself use the same analogy of the seed being planted? Some fell in thorns, some in stones, some in poor ground, some in rich earth. I would hope and pray, and I hope that you do the same, that this could be good ground. That this might be a place where God would plant some to grow. He does say he will plant seven trees in the wilderness there in Isaiah 41. Seven churches. All seven. Wilderness and the desert. That's where it's going to happen. Can there be good ground in the wilderness? Good ground in the desert? 
that God can make grow? Nobody has any trouble growing a good garden or having a crop in Ohio or Iowa. Well, we've got some drought now, but generally speaking. We could have led an Amish life if we'd been an Amish country. We're out here in this God-forsaken, seemingly, desert and wilderness. We're learning to grow physical gardens a bit, doing better than we were ten years ago when we got here. Are we going growing good spiritual ground to nurture people? <clears throat> Is this a fertile place, a place of water, a living water, in the wilderness and desert that God could bring people? I challenge us. Not to go about vain pursuits, as we heard about it from Ecclesiastes in the sermonette, but that which will be eternal, so that they might come and sow their spiritual seed here and reap joy. Can God use us for that? I think He can, brethren. I think He can. He would not have called us out here to start a spot to do so, unless he felt it could happen. Now, do we pull away the shoulder? Do we sometimes drag our feet? Do we sometimes get in attitudes? Do we sometimes do this or do that that is unproductive? Yes. And then does God cause us to have trouble and trial and adversity and difficulty? Even satanic influence? What do I mean? What do you mean, even? All people on this earth are demon-influenced. All people. Satan influences everybody through culture, through the various things he set up. It's just a matter of degrees. We let him get to us sometimes, and he is out seeking whom he may devour. Well, if God would let this happen, or God would let that happen, then there must be something terribly wrong here. Well, there is something terribly wrong. We've not sought God yet with our whole heart. Therefore, we have adversity, conflict, difficulty, bad attitudes, and so on and so forth. And we must repent of them. I don't know whether we'll get to it yet today. What time is it? Uh, probably not. But if we don't, while I've got it on my mind, we probably will next week. I'd like to ask you to consider through the week, this is called meditation and thought on God's Word, what could be listed perhaps as the worst sin? There are varying degrees of sin. God hates adultery and fornication and lying and thieving and various things of that nature. But you know what he hates worse than that? Homosexuality. That's what caused Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed. Paul even expressed that, that, yeah, there may be sin that is natural sin, and that's bad enough, but it's not as bad as perverted sin that is not natural in any form or fashion, utterly despicable and disgusting to God. And we have more and more and more of that in the world and in this nation. And God 
pull the pin on Sodom and Gomorrah for that one. But I dare say, there are worse sins. Think about that through the week. I don't think I'm going to get there today, but it'll give you something to come armed with next week to see if your thoughts coincide with what I think I'm seeing. Now, that doesn't mean in in one sense that we can categorize sin and say this one is a lot worse than that one, because all sin can kill you, okay? All sin can kill you. Any sin can kill you. But some, in terms of human effect upon people and cultures, can be far worse than others in what they do to a society. So we won't get into that particular argument, but let's talk about that probably next time. Just give you something to chew on over the week. Anyway, he says, turn again our our captivity and let us reap in joy. He that goes forth, verse 6, and weeps bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So he says, when you have this precious seed of God, his Holy Spirit planted in your mind as a germination, a conception, when you have that seed and you come weeping, Christ Jesus wept. He was a man of sorrow because of the grievous things he saw on this earth and the unhappiness and the misery in human lives. And he brought, or sent, the precious seed of his Spirit to conceive and grow in our minds, to produce spiritual fruit. But carrying the seed of the mind of God in our minds brings with it weeping. It brings sometimes discouragement, doubt and fear, because we all know that we fall short, that we have faults, that we make mistakes, that we get into bad attitudes, and all manner of things that are ungodly. So we weep. And sometimes we despise ourselves because of what we lack. So it's not easy, is it? Nobody said it would be easy. In fact, everything I read says it would be hard. So when you bring your seed with weeping, you shall doubtless come again. If you weep, and if you cry, Isaiah even says it, those that sigh and cry for the abominations on the earth. If we come with weeping and repentance and working at the way of God in spite of the way of flesh that is so much a part of us, we will come again bringing in the sheaves, that is the harvest, hugging to our chest the fruit of the Spirit of God that was planted. Old Protestant song came from this verse, I'm quite sure. They shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheep. But lo and behold, 
in the context of the church, it speaks the truth. We sing Psalm 127 fairly frequently here. Except the eternal build a house, they labor in vain that build it. And perhaps, for the most part, when we sing that hymn, we think of families in God's church, Feast of Tabernacles, singing this song or in weekly Sabbath service about how God is building through the family. And we equate that. And certainly, the human family is to be a type of and looking forward to the kingdom of God. But it is only a type. And the church is also included in that type because it's the house of God or the temple of God, and each of our individual bodies is the temple of God, and combined together as a body, we are called also the temple of God. That's why there can be no split, no division, no schism, no I am of Paul or I am of Apollos or whatever. We all have to speak together with the same voice and be unified together. Except the eternal build the church. Let's use that analogy since we're talking about prophecies of the end. They labor in vain that build it. You can start your own. You can do your thing. But unless God is the one raising it up, it isn't going to accomplish anything. It will die. Except the eternal keep the city, the watchman wakes but in vain. There are many, many organizations in the church of God today that will be knocked down. And all the watching and all the praying that is involved will be in vain. It will not accomplish anything. No matter how sincerely done. Because God is going to build one latter temple, one church. And they that come from all other organizations and lack thereof to that one are the ones who are going to be blessed and are going to be part of the latter temple. There again, Haggai and Zechariah, among others, make that very plain. <coughs> so watching or preaching will do no good unless God is there. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, or... Anxiousness, as is better translated, for so he gives his beloved sleep. <coughs> you can watch, you can worry, you can sit up late in anxiety, lay in bed worrying, it will do no good. God gives his beloved sleep. He gives them peace of mind. That allows sleep. Conflict of mind does not allow it. Frustration and discouragement and bad attitudes toward someone or God robs us of sleep. Conflict robs us of sleep. So it has to come from God. There are going to be a lot of sleepless nights ahead for a lot of people who are in the churches of God today. And then dirt sleep in the tribulation. And it is only where God brings peace that there will be peace. Nowhere else. 
That's why he says it in Haggai 2.9. In this place, the latter temple, led by the two witnesses, and those stirred to come to build it in the end time, is the only place on earth there will be peace. I hope you and I are there when this comes down. Lo, children are in heritage of the eternal. When God stirs those people to come, it will be He who chooses and decides whom to stir. We could go out looking for them, as many of the churches are today, trying to proselyte, trying to get more followers, it's futile, or futile if you preserve, prefer. It isn't happening. Oh, they, get, they attract a few in the front door, and then some more out the back door. They come and go, the turnstile. No, when God calls His together, it will be individually chosen, stirred by God, and He will be the one who produces that fruit. So he uses his physical analogy. Children are in heritage of the eternal, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. He tells us in many places that the church in the end time can be likened to a woman giving birth. And it says she strains, and she's in pain, and she works at it. It seems like it'll never come. And the only strain and strain and go through the uh, contractions, and all you do is pass air. He uses that analogy himself in Isaiah. Seems like no matter how hard we try, all we get is methane. I'm not being crass. That's God said that. the analogy he uses. It has to come from him. The fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. We're weak, we're small, we're base, but we're going to be strong. He says there in Micah 4, that we will rise in fresh. says it in Isaiah as well. And seven, even eight principal men will go out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land and will put them to flight. So are children of the youth. Not great, mature, wonderful, stalwart Christians, but just people who are called together and have the power of Almighty God. Have you thought of this? When you sang that hymn, or just your little happy family with your little children sitting around your table. That is merely an analogy of a bigger picture. Now, it's a good analogy, no doubt, and God can bless physical families. But there's something bigger being suggested. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. Zerubbabel is going to be the one who has his quiver full and even that is only a type of Emmanuel the coming king who is truly going to have a quiver full in the millennium and afterward. Given by his Father in heaven. 
They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. They can confront the enemy at the gate and win. That's what Micah 4 tells us. Let's do maybe one more and stop. Blessed is everyone that fears the eternal, that walks in his ways. So he goes through and shows the protection that's coming and how God will bless and how our tears will turn to tears of joy and singing and happiness and gladness. So then he reminds us, blessed is everyone that fears the eternal, that walks in his ways. Those are the ones that he is going to stir to come and finish his work. For you shall eat the labor of your hands. We've labored. I know I was directed, and I have no doubt of it, to prepare a place. The advance crew. How God will take it from here, we shall see. I don't know. I'm not claiming anything. But I do feel that he opened up the knowledge of where to go and what to do so that it might be done, and he called you out of all the thousands in the church, tens of thousands, to come as a prep crew. And you are going to eat the labor of your hands. We've built this place. We have more to build or more to do. Meantime, there's a little bit of anxiety. Let's say we're at teenage, would you? We came out, we started out, we started building things. And then, like you're raising kids, you go through a pretty rough patch as they begin to transition from children to adults. And they fight themselves and they fight you. And there is discouragement and frustration that increases for a while until they morph into adults. And it's a difficult time in most cases. So we have come and we have started something, but then we go through a period of time where they'll just never get the picture. This will never happen. My 13-year-old will never reach 20. My wife even accuses me occasionally of not ever having gotten past 14 and wonders what I want to be when I grow up. We joke about stuff like that. Or she does with me anyway. And it's okay. I understand where she's coming from. It's not a problem. We laugh about it and she cries about it. Never mind. But we're arrows in the hand of a mighty man, of Christ. And he is going to see that this thing happens. We'll eat the labor of our hands, brethren. What we have gone through to do here, if we remain steadfast and strong, is going to happen. We will bring in the sheaves. Happy shall you be, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of your house. Our physical families, Christ's family, and even our church family, because he uses the family in all of those categories. Behold, 
Behold, that thus shall a man be blessed that fears the eternal. And he even gives us then a hint as to where, not a hint, but a statement of where this is going to happen. The eternal shall bless you out of Zion. All of this that we're talking about is going to occur in wherever the true Jerusalem and Zion are. Now, I do not expect many to believe that it isn't in the Middle East at this point. That is almost unbelievable and would be unbelievable to 99.9999999999% of the world. Okay? I get it. I understand that. I understand the skepticism. But I think I can show you soon an awful lot of proof that Satan has created an incredible counterfeit and rewritten history in so doing. But we will be blessed out of Zion, wherever it is. And you shall see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. This physical life. Does anyone see the good of Jerusalem today? I see Catholics and Protestants and Muslims and all kinds of people in terrible conflict, a state of war, and misery, degradation, poverty, and godlessness in the nation of Israel today, which is basically a secular, not a religious nation. Just because people are so-called Jews, and I think most of those are Edomites, it's another story. They think if they're Jews, they must be religious. No way. Most who claim to be Jews today on the face of the earth are not religious people. The majority of people in that nation over there today are godless by choice and do not go to synagogue or temple or follow the Jewish religion. That is just a fact. But we're supposed to see the good of Jerusalem all the days of our life. Once God restores the church, and once he restores Jerusalem, we're going to see good for the rest of our lives on this earth until Christ returns, and then it's going to get far better even. And all our eternal life, we will enjoy goodness and peace and happiness. Yes, you shall see your children's children and peace upon Israel. When are we going to see, generation after generation, grandchildren, grandchildren, seeing peace upon Israel? Today? That's a laugh. In the millennium, we, you and I, will see our children live in the millennium, and their children born for a thousand years of peace. And we will see our children's children all the way through. Some of you who don't have children may have some by then. We have years before Christ returns. I don't care what the Mayan calendar says or what people say is going to happen if 
Nibiru or Ibiru or Hebrew. It ain't happening that way. This book says so. It is going to take time to build a spiritual and a physical temple. It is going to take about a year and a half to rebuild Jerusalem before the abomination is even set up and the three and a half years of tribulation even commence. We have years before Christ returns to this earth. So says this book. And when this gathering happens, there may be some of you who are sitting there saying, nothing will happen in this life. Might better rethink. He's going to heal the lame and the deaf and the blind. He's going to give His people, as Isaiah 35 says, the legs of deer to run and jump. And some of you old people with bad knees are going to be surprised. Sarah had a baby at how old? You've got to be kidding. <laughs> she had to chuckle, you know. She just really did. You may be surprised some of the things that happened. Some of you who may have grown old in this life and never had children might be surprised. Oops. But it would be a joy under those circumstances, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? You shall see your children's children and peace upon Israel. You. We who read these words in the end time. We're the last ones to read them. It can only apply to us. Because we're the only ones that are going to live through and see this happen. Just as Christ said, this generation shall not perish until these things happen. Was he talking about those people living when he said that? Well, obviously not, because it hasn't happened yet. He'd have been a liar. He'd have lied. Therefore, he couldn't have been referring to that generation. What does the context, always read the context, tell you he was talking about? In where he said that, he was talking about the end of times, the abomination, fleeing to a place of safety. He was talking about the end of the age. So the generation he was referring to is us. This last calling under Herbert Armstrong, mostly and essentially, of the church. And it applies even more so to that which supersedes worldwide church of God, and that is the temple built under the two witnesses. That is the final fulfillment. And that is the generation he's talking about. That's why he says in Haggai, or wherever it is, that there will be old men who saw the former temple, who will see the latter temple and compare and say the latter is by far greater. This generation, you and me, we will not all die out until this happens. And that's not talking about your children that might be in the church that are 30 or 40 years old. It's talking about us gray-headed ones. 
those who were called back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. That's the ones it's talking about. Not middle-aged. Old men who saw it in its greatest glory. You who are 30 or 40 never saw that. That only takes you back to, say, 1970, if you're 40. And I'm being a little kind there. It was all over by then, pretty much. The ministers were rebelling. The church was beginning to show cracks. That wasn't the best time. It wasn't the greatest glory. More prayers were being answered and more healings taking place in the 50s and 60s than any time, and maybe 40s to some degree, even though it was tiny. But the real growth and people who were turning truly to God happened more in the 50s and 60s than any other time. So it has to be people who could look at that from a mature standpoint that this has to be talking about. Now, I'm not saying that somebody who came in in the 70s and 80s or 90s or might be being converted today aren't converted and that those people back then were better. I'm not saying this to make anybody feel bad, and I'm not saying that because that's true. I'm just saying that the church as a whole had more spiritual power in the 50s and 60s than it ever did since. And there will be people who called at the 11th hour who will be a part of the Bride of Christ. Let's get that straight. But it's talking about old people who will still be alive and see the children dancing in the streets and playing in the streets of Jerusalem, as Zechariah says, and that's before Christ ever returns in the context of Zechariah. It all fits together. You shall see your children's children and peace upon Israel. You in this room and those who will join you. is what this prophecy is talking about. And in a larger sense, your children's children in the millennium and the rule of Christ upon this earth. Let's stop there.